The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Ladies, putting on good underwear in the morning is a key part of owning your day. Good underwear helps you feel confident, powerful, sexy, and ready to conquer the world. When they told me that me undies are the most comfortable underwear you'll ever own, I thought, nah. And then I tried them myself. Soft, stylish, and so comfortable. Whether you prefer a traditional bikini, the modest boy short, or a cheeky thong, there's a style, pattern, and fit just for you. Me Undies is so sure you will love their underwear, they even offer a 100% satisfaction guarantee. And if you don't love your first pair, you get a full refund. This is a limited time offer, so what are you waiting for? Start wearing the best underwear of your life. It changed my life, and it's time to let Me Undies change yours. Go to MeUndies.com slash gone right now. You get 20% off, free shipping, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. What are you waiting for? That's MeUndies.com slash gone. You are listening to the Already Gone podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. When I work on a case, I try and get as much information as I can. I scour old newspapers, check blogs, message boards, submit Freedom of Information Act requests. I call active detectives and pester retired sergeants. But what I don't do is I don't reach out to the family, as I'm well aware that what I'm writing about is the worst day of someone's life. A painful day, leaving them with emptiness and questions. In this case, the victim was the youngest of three girls, and I read about her two older sisters in news articles and on social media. It's not my usual practice to contact family members, but this time, I decided to break with tradition and ask if they'd talk to me. And both of Kimberly King's sisters said yes. I was rewarded with two women who wanted to talk about the case, about their grief, and how they've processed their loss. And they really wanted to talk about their sister, a spirited 12-year-old girl who vanished just before her 13th birthday. There one minute, and then gone, because she got in the wrong car, or she trusted the wrong person. Kimberly Ann King was loved fiercely by her parents, her grandparents, and her sisters. Kim King's name has been in the press, linked to the work of the Oakland County child killer, even though Kim wasn't in Oakland County when she vanished. Each time she's mentioned, they show the same school photo, wavy hair, a half-smile, a suggestion of the beauty that is to come, but doesn't arrive. Kimberly Ann King is 12 years old forever and ever. And this is what we're left with, memories and photos. Her last day is a puzzle with Kim in the middle, surrounded by questionable characters, a loving family, and her hometown of Warren. It's September 1979. Kimberly King is a student at Lincoln Middle School in Warren. 
If you aren't familiar with Warren, you'll find it at the south end of Macomb County, mostly home to auto workers and their families. It's also a vital manufacturing and technological hub. The General Motors Tech Center dominates the heart of the city on Van Dyke near 13 Mile Road, right across from City Hall and the library. Warren is also home to the world headquarters of Big Boy Restaurants and the U.S. Army Detroit Arsenal, the U.S. Army Tank Command, and the U.S. Army Life Cycle Management Command. With a population of about 130,000 people, it is the third largest city in Michigan, behind Detroit and Grand Rapids. Warren is known for its many streets with French and German street names like Grosbeck, Dequinder, Grashet, Van Dyke, and Shainer. Most of these roads run roughly north and south, while mile roads from 8 mile north to the city border at 14 mile, those run east to west. Interstate 696 cuts through the center of the city around 11 mile road. I try not to focus too much on geography, but because we're going to cover where Kim was staying, where she was seen, and where it's thought she disappeared from, I wanted to give you an idea of the layout. At the eastern border of Warren is the city of East Detroit. These days, the city goes by a different name, East Point, selected because of the upscale neighborhood to its east in Wayne County, Gross Point. But at the time of our story, Gratiot Avenue ran through East Detroit. Fall 1979 is nearly 28 months after the last victim of the Oakland County child killer, Timothy King of Birmingham, was picked up at a drugstore off Woodward Avenue, only to be left days later on the side of the road in Wayne County. I'm folding this Oakland County case in here because you will see that Kimberly Ann King is mentioned as possibly being another victim of this unidentified serial murderer. Kim's neighborhood is roughly seven miles due east of Woodward Avenue. You cannot help but notice the similarities between the name of the last confirmed victim of the Oakland County child killer, Tim King, with the name of this missing girl, Kim King. And while she disappeared from an area near Grashut, seven miles east of Woodward, it was in the right time frame, and she's approximately the right age. Kim, as I said, is the youngest of three girls. She has two older sisters, Kathy and Connie. Kim's parents divorced a couple of years prior. Their mother, who was prone to angry outbursts that sometimes became violent, lost custody of the girls, which put them with their father, Harry King. Harry may be the more stable and consistent parent, but he has his own challenges, including a criminal record. He's done time in Jackson Prison, which led him to some unsavory friendships. Harry leaves Warren to live up in Waterford in North Oakland County, taking his daughter Kathy with him. Connie also moves to North Oakland County. She's an adult now, out on her own. Harry still works in Warren, so he's in the area several times a week. The girl's mother has remarried and lives in Sterling Heights, the bedroom community just north of Warren. Kim does not want to move to Waterford. She wants to be where her friends are. Harry's parents agree that Kim can live with them, and as the summer winds down, Kim starts preparing for school. She's enrolled at Lincoln Middle School and has many friends in the area, including Annie, who lives just across the street from the King home on Dodge Avenue. One afternoon, Kim makes plans to sleep over at Annie's house. Unfortunately, Annie's parents tell her no, she cannot have a friend sleep over that night. But Kim, Kim has a plan. She tells her grandparents that she's staying over at Annie's house and enters Annie's home. 
Then Kim slips out the back of the house, climbs over the rear fence, and is on her way. Now, Annie knew of Kim's plan, but Annie's parents and Kim's grandparents are none the wiser. And I believe that when Kim left Annie's, she was headed east to Gratiot Avenue. In the 1970s and even into the 80s, Gratiot was a big hangout. People would cruise Gratiot. It was a place to see and be seen. Get behind the wheel of your fine Detroit steel and go for a ride. It was a good time. People were just out cruising. Now, if you lived a little further west, you cruised Woodward. Roll south to 8 Mile, take Michigan left, and then right, and roll north to 16 Mile. Or was it Metro Parkway? Either way, you were just out cruising, having fun. Gratiot Avenue is an eight-lane road with a boulevard in the middle as it cuts through East Detroit, goes north into Roseville, and up into Clinton Township. It may have been six lanes in 1979 with parking along the curb, but either way, a nice big road to cruise on. And Kim, despite her young age, she wanted to hang out on Gratiot. She wanted to see and be seen. And one of her favorite hangouts was at the White Castle Restaurant on Gratiot in East Detroit. Now, her older sisters, who she was close with, were horrified that she was out hitchhiking, cruising Gratiot with people that she didn't know. They told her, it's not safe. You are putting yourself at risk. Please do not do this. But Kim would not be dissuaded. Her friends would tell authorities that Kim would make plans to sleep over at their house, then tell the friend that she'd see them in a few hours. She was going to slip out the window, and she'd knock on the window later to be let back in, and the friend's parents would never find out. When she explained her plan to Annie that night, it wasn't the first time that Kim had done this. And unfortunately, it was the last. On the night she disappeared, Kim had plans with her sister. Kathy wanted to drive their dad to his job in Warren and then take his car to pick up Kim and go see a movie. Unfortunately, Harry King told Kathy no, she couldn't take the car. The King home in Waterford did not have a phone, so Kathy went to a neighbor's to call her sister Connie and tell Connie that if Kim called, to tell her sorry, but she couldn't pick her up. Eventually, Kim did call Connie. She was mad that Kathy didn't show up to get her. And Connie explained that Kathy couldn't get the car, so she wasn't able to see her. And Connie asked Kim where she was, and Kim said she was calling from the Gary Mart, a local party store at the corner near their grandparents' home. Connie told Kim to go home, that it wasn't safe for her to be out so late by herself. In retrospect, neither Kathy nor Connie believed that Kim called from the Gary Mart. They speculated that Kim was likely with someone and called from the White Castle in East Detroit. On Sunday, the alarm was raised. Kim hadn't made it back to Annie's house. Her grandparents couldn't find her, and calls were placed to both of her parents and to her older sister. No one knew where Kim was. Because her parents had an unpleasant divorce and Kim was living with her grandparents rather than her father who had custody, police looked at Kim's mother and her husband. Well, to be honest, police didn't look much, if they looked at all. Not in 1979. Kim was written off as a runaway. Her sister had a pattern of running away, so Kim must have done the same. Concerns were shrugged off. Days passed, and the runaway aspect didn't look as likely. Well, parents had an ugly divorce, and mom lost custody, so maybe it's some play between the parents over custody. But it was neither. 
Kim was a 12-year-old girl, a child, and she was missing. Despite their fervent hopes that Kim struck out on her own, that she'd headed to Texas to stay with her cousins, or was crashing on a friend's sofa, it wasn't the case. Kimberly Ann King was gone. Meanwhile, students at Lincoln Middle School are wondering where Kim went, and the rumors are flying that she'd run off to Waterford and was crashing with someone there. Well, it would place her not too far from her sisters. Other rumors brought up that Kim liked to run with an older crowd. Not just high school boys, but high school boys with cars. Kim's two favorite hangouts were the White Castle on Gratiot and an arcade on 8 Mile near Shaner. Both locations were checked for Kim on Sunday the 16th, but there was no sign of her. The arcade on 8 Mile? Wizards? was a popular hangout from the late 70s into the 1980s. In the days before home gaming systems, teens and young adults hung out at the arcades the way that teens and young adults today spend time at the local coffee house. Just like cruising Grashut, being at the arcade was another way to see and be seen. Now, Kim's sisters didn't think Kim had run off. Not really. While the relationship between the girls and their parents could be challenging, the three sisters stuck together. Kim would have called them. She would have called one of them to say where she was and to tell them that she was okay. But Kim never called. In early 1980, there were reports that Kim had colored her light brown hair to a darker shade and was using the name Tracy. Kim slash Tracy was seen up and down Gratiot during the winter and spring of 1980. But when friends, family, or police would show up where she'd been, she was gone. In March, they finally catch up with Tracy, and it's determined that while Tracy looks a lot like Kim, well, Kim with dark hair, it's not Kim. This news was heartbreaking to those who held out hope that their girl was still running around and could be found and returned to them safely. When they learn that it's not Kim, Warren police decide that it's time for polygraphs. Remember, it's 1980, and polygraphs are viewed in a more favorable light. The family has issued polygraphs, but there doesn't appear to be any red flags pointing the way to Kim. And I want to point out how crazy frustrating the case is at this point. Kim's last known location was Annie's house on Dodge Avenue in Warren. She told her sister that she was calling from a payphone on Nine Mile, a block or two from Annie's house and her grandparents' house. What if Kim lied? What if she wasn't at the payphone at the corner? What if she'd gone down to 8 Mile, to Wizards, or up to her favorite fast food place and made the call from there? Not having this key piece of information, the where, to launch a search or a canvas, it made her case that much harder to pursue. All we have to work with is the crowd she ran with on Gratiot, and even then, her friends only knew the first names or had met someone once or twice, but there wasn't a lot of information to start with. Plus, the police really weren't talking to Kim's friends. They didn't do a real investigation into her case at the time. To give you an idea of the quality of the investigation into Kim's disappearance, Annie, Kim's friend who she supposedly spent the night with, Annie was interviewed by police in 1989, 10 years after Kim vanished. Now, Kim's family is open about their frustration with the initial response to her case, and they are also open about the help and work done more recently by Warren Police, for which they are grateful. DNA was collected, and Kim's dental records are on file should a body be located that could be her. 
Going back to the early 80s, in March of 1983, a journalism student at Columbia University wrote a piece about Kim's disappearance. This brings new attention to her case, nationwide attention, and something shakes loose. In April of 1983, a letter arrives at the Roseville Police Department. The handwritten letter contains a confession and a hand-drawn map, saying that Kim's remains are in a field in northern Macomb County, in Shelby Township. And while a search team is assembled and permission sought to access the area, the note is sent to the crime lab for fingerprints. On April 22nd, a team descends on the parcel in Shelby Township. The search is done. Teams of searchers, cadaver dogs, the works. They're there for three days, but they don't find anything. And looking back at this letter through a 21st century lens, I'd like to know if the flap on the envelope or the stamp was ever swabbed for DNA. In October of 1984, Kim's 18th birthday comes and goes. She is now a missing adult. In 1986, another girl disappears from the area, Cindy Zarzicki, a 13-year-old living in East Detroit. She, too, came from a home where the parents were divorced, and it was a Saturday in April that she made plans with a friend. She told her father that on Sunday morning, she'll be attending church with her friend Kathy and Kathy's family. But in reality, she'd made plans to see a boy that she liked, Scott Ream. Cindy had a big crush on him, and Art Ream, Scott's father, invited the cute teenager with short blonde hair to attend a surprise birthday party for his son. Sunday morning, Cindy dressed, styled her hair, put on her favorite white boots, picked up her denim handbag, and set out for the Dairy Queen on Nine Mile Road. The Dairy Queen was just a couple miles east of the payphone Kim may have used to call her sister that September night in 1979. Cindy's younger brother, Ed, tried to stop Cindy from going, telling her she'd get caught, she'd get in trouble, he should go with her. Cindy told him no, and when he insisted, Ed said that she screamed at him, no, you can't come. So Ed watched his big sister walk away, and it was the last time that he would see her. Cindy Zarzicki was gone, just like Kim King seven years earlier. Police believe she'd run away, just like Kim King seven years earlier. But about ten years after she went missing, East Detroit police opened up the Zarzicki file again and decided to interview the boy she was supposedly going to see. Now 22 years old, Scott Ream, Cindy's big crush the summer of 1986, agreed that he would speak to police about Cindy and what he recalled from that time. But Scott never got the chance to participate in the interview. He was killed by a drunk driver first. Scott's father, Art Ream, had a criminal history, and he liked young girls. In 1975, he was convicted of indecent liberties with a minor. It wasn't until 2007 when Art Ream was in prison on unrelated charges, that they learned the truth. He had lured Cindy into his white van with promises of a surprise birthday party for his son, her crush. There was no party. There was only a predator who manipulated a girl into being vulnerable. And on the day she disappeared, Ream murdered Cindy and buried her on his property in northern Macomb County. Cindy's case was finally closed and her family was able to bring her home and give her a proper burial. Art Ream was ruled out as a suspect in Kim's disappearance. But Art Ream isn't the only notorious criminal with links to Kimberly King. 
If you listen to the episodes I did on the Oakland County child killer, you may recognize this name, Arch Sloan. He was a primary suspect in the case, but they couldn't make anything stick to him. Arch Sloan has an interesting role in Kim's story. I mentioned earlier that Kim's father had a prison record. Well, one of the people he met in prison was Arch Edward Sloan, known to his friends as Sloan. Kathy, Kim's sister, recalls meeting Sloan and that her dad sometimes played cards at Sloan's house. Sloan's house was also a big hangout for teens. There was always a party going on in his place. Arch Sloan has a horrific criminal record dating back to the 1950s. His first arrest was in 1959 for gross indecency, and he served two years in prison. Upon parole, he moved to Pennsylvania, where he was arrested in 1970, charged with sodomy and corrupting the morals of a minor. He was sentenced to five to ten years, but served about four years. Now, I'm asking you to read between the lines on these charges. Sloan was having sexual contact with children. Sloan was a sick, sick man. But 1975 finds him back in Michigan. And in 1978, he's accused in two separate criminal sexual assault cases involving kids. And in 1979, he serves six months in prison for the charges. This is the third time he's been imprisoned for sexual contact with minors, but he only serves six months. In March of 1980, he's convicted of third-degree criminal sexual misconduct and sentenced to a year in prison. This is his fourth charge involving sex with children. In 1983, he offers to take the son of a co-worker on a fishing trip, and the co-worker allows his preteen son to spend the night with Arch Sloan. Yes, you heard that correctly. Someone let their preteen son sleep over at Sloan's house. Sloan gets the boy drunk on wine and then rapes him repeatedly. Finally, on this, his fifth incident, Sloan is sentenced to life in prison. The link between Sloan and the Oakland County child killer case comes in the form of a hair found in his car. The hair matches hairs found on the two male victims. Investigators have theorized that Sloan could have loaned someone his car. Sloan had two or three vehicles, and he could have given his car to the person responsible for the deaths of Timothy King and Mark Stebbins. So, if you're thinking that Sloan likes boys and his crimes were generally perpetrated toward teen boys, it's possible that Sloan knew other people with similar tastes who preferred prepubescent girls. If Harry King knew Sloan well enough that his daughter Kathy knew Arch Sloan, it's possible that Kimberly King also knew him. It's also possible that Kimberly King was out that Saturday night and came across Sloan, someone who knew her father. Now, the last suspect I'll mention is another name associated with the Oakland County child killer, David Norberg. In 1979, Norberg was a 34-year-old auto worker, married, living in Warren with his wife, and driving a small blue car, a car not too different from the oft-mentioned but ultimately incorrect blue gremlin from the Oakland County Child Killer news reports and bulletins. Norberg came to the attention of the task force when tips came in saying that he looked like the sketch that was circulating after Mark Stebbins, the first victim, who was taken from Nine Mile Road in Ferndale, disappeared. 
In news reports, I've also read about the death of 13-year-old Jane Allen from Royal Oak, who vanished in August of 1976, that she was potentially linked to David Norberg. Something about the way Norberg bound his wife during domestic disputes, matching the way that Jane Allen's body was bound when she was recovered from the Great Miami River near Dayton a few days after she disappeared. Allen's cause of death was carbon monoxide poisoning. So in 1980, just a few months after Kim vanished, Norberg quit his job as an auto worker and moved west to the tiny remote town of Recluse, Wyoming. He would be dead a year later after a single car vehicle accident. In 1999, a team led by our old friend L. Brooks Patterson flew to Wyoming to exhume his remains. It seems like after his death, among his belongings were some items that could be linked to the Oakland County child killer victim, Christine Mihalik. Norberg was questioned in 1977 about the murders, but his wife provided an alibi for him, which she recanted after his death. Of course, these are just theories about potential suspects. We don't know what became of Kim after she slipped out the window at Annie's house. And except for a phone call with her sister Connie later that night, Kim vanished forever. In my research on this case, I had the pleasure of speaking with both of Kim's older sisters, Kathy and Connie. I have the interview with Connie to share with you after this word from our sponsor. Like many of you, I'm trying to eat better, eat healthier, get enough protein, I've found a wonderful way to fill myself up with something healthy and nutritious, something that I feel good about. RX Bars. They put the core ingredients right on the front of the package. Egg whites, dates, almonds, cashews. Each bar has 7 grams of protein, and they're delicious. There's even a kid's version of the bar that comes in three flavors. Apple Cinnamon Raisin, Berry Blast, and Chocolate Chip. The RX Bar Kids have zero added sugar, no gluten, soy, dairy, or bad stuff. They're a perfect on-the-go snack for my girls before practice or before school. RX Bars are available at Target stores. Or for 25% off your first order, visit rxbar.com slash gone and use code gone at checkout to save 25% on your first order. That's rxbar.com slash gone and use code gone at checkout. And for our listeners, can you tell us your name? Connie Bema. And you are? The older sister to Kimberly King. When was the last time that you spoke with Kim? 11 p.m. that same evening. She called me from a payphone, said she was on Nine Mile in Hoover, which would have been probably seven houses away from my grandmother's house where she was living. And uh, I asked her to please go back home, asked her what she was doing out at that time of night alone. She explained why she was calling me. I asked her to go right back home. She said she was spending the night across the street from our grandmother's with her best friend, Annie. And I said, please, then go back there right now. She promised me she was, and that was the last time I spoke with her. And it sounds like she was maybe using the phone up at the Gary Mart? That's what she says. Okay. That's what she said at the time, yes. And we know that she did not make it home. Correct. That night, there was uh, a gentleman, I'm just going to give his first name, which was Jim, who I believe was a friend of your sister Kathy's, who said that he had given her a ride, possibly that night or possibly another night. Correct. 
and he said at the time, I am unclear exactly where he picked her up, but he drove her to the area of 11 Mile and Garasha to a White Castle hamburger restaurant and um, said that he had to help her dial the phone, that she needed to call someone named Connie, and that he dialed the phone for her, and then he left her there. And when questioned later, he said he left her there because she he thought she was much older than she was. He had no idea that she was 12. And had he known, he would have stayed with her until he could have located one of her sisters, which would have been my older sister, Kathy. And it sounds like you know, he was on the level that that is what happened to the best of his knowledge, and perhaps he couldn't confirm that that had taken place on the night she disappeared. Correct. Correct. Okay. So it could have been a different night, but... Well, they say that's possible. However, that was the only night in that immediate time frame that she had called me at that time of night. Okay. So in my opinion, he was with her on that night. And again... Had she called me the night before, you know, even three or four days before... I would have said so, but that was the only time she had called me at 11 p.m. at night. Okay. When you realized that she was missing on Sunday morning, yes. can you tell me what, what happened, how that played out? I believe that I called my grandmother to see if Kim had made it home. Um, my husband at the time asked me to call my grandmother on Saturday evening when she called me at 11 o'clock. And I would not. I did not want to get her in trouble. I believed her when she said she was going back to Annie's. And so I was anxious on Sunday to make sure that she had made it back home. So I called my grandmother and asked to speak to her. And um, I think that continued for some time into the early afternoon. And she hadn't made it back. And then my grandmother finally went over to Annie's house to ask where Kim was, and that's when she discovered that she had not come back um, the night before. They thought she had gone home. The parents thought she must have gone home. So that's when my grandmother discovered she was, in fact, missing. They filed a report with the Warren Police Department, and how did that go? I wasn't there at the time they filed the report. I was called in later and asked if I would take a lie detector test, as I believe everyone in my family was asked to do, and I did go in. I really, since I wasn't there at the moment the missing persons report was filed, I I guess I I can't speak to that. All I can speak to is subsequently any interaction I had with them. They did not seem to be on fire to locate her. They felt that she was probably a runaway or it was a parental abduction, parental situation. So it didn't seem that they expended much energy in looking for her. That was the impression that I got from what I've read is that it was just sort of, well, she probably ran off. And then when she didn't turn up after a couple of days, well, her parents had a divorce. Mom doesn't have custody. You know, maybe this is a domestic issue. And from what it sounds like, while your parents may not have been on the best terms with your sister, the two older sisters, you know, you and your sister were both on very good terms with Kim, and she would have called you. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And we tried to express that to the police over and over again. She just would not leave us worrying. I know she would not do that to us. Now, in the spring of 1980, there were a couple of 
sightings of Kim or someone they thought was Kim. One was uh, that she had colored her hair dark and was going by the name Tracy. Did any of that filter back to you? The only one that filtered back to me was one a young girl was seen um, around a pinball arcade, I believe, off Eight Mile Road. Wizards. And, wizards. And she looked very, very similar to Kim. And I think many people thought it was Kim. And they began calling. The police eventually located the young girl, and it was not Kim. But she okay. looked so similar that they wrote off the other sightings as being this young lady. Okay, and that was the the Tracy, and there was actually, yes. they identified yes. her, that this was a, a totally different person. Right, correct. And then not a whole lot happened. It sounds like there were polygraphs for the family. And not results not shared with other family members. So to this day, I can't say how my father's or my mother's went, whether they were ever considered that they may know something more than what they are sharing with us. And do you, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but do you feel it's possible that either one of your parents were involved in her disappearance? I, I do think it's a possibility. Is it likely? I suppose probably not, but it is a possibility. And I would like to know how my parents' polygraph tests went, Yes. And my understanding is that your mom passed away in the last few years, but your father is still alive? Correct. And then you had a stepfather named Jack Wolf. Yes. And you, he was also polygraphed? I believe he was, yes. Okay. And again, his results were not shared with me. At the time that Kim disappeared, you were living up in water... No, you were living in Pontiac? Correct. Okay, and your sister and dad were living in... Waterford. Waterford, and then yes. Kim was living with your grandparents in Warren, and Correct. then your mom and her new husband were living in Sterling Heights. Correct. Okay, so everybody's a little bit spread out, but it sounds Correct. like your grandparents were good people. They loved they Kim. Were. They, they were. They were attentive. Very good I remember reading that your grandmother bought a plot yes. for her and wants her buried beside her. Yes. Which would be very nice to be able to do. That would be, at, at least, that would bring some closure to be able to bring her remains home and put them with family. That would mean everything to us. I can imagine. In March of 1983, a Columbia journalism student wrote a paper or an article about Kim's disappearance, and it ended up getting a lot of press. Have you ever seen this article? I have not. Okay. I have not. I have not been able to find it either. I um, am trying to get my hands on it because I would like to see it. But it apparently drew a fair amount of attention to the case. And then about a month later, in April of 83, the Roseville Police Department receives a letter. And it was a, a rather apologetic sort of rambly letter saying that, that Kim had been killed and was buried up in Shelby Township. Right. I remember that letter, but I was told that they felt that it was a hoax and that it had been prompted probably by an article that had run in the Macomb Daily just prior to the Roseville police receiving that letter, that um, the Warren police really did not put much weight in it and just suspected that it was a hoax. And that they were just trying, whoever wrote it, felt sorry for the family and that they were just trying to provide a little closure to us 
by saying things like she wasn't beaten or tortured and she didn't know she was going to die. Um, That led police to believe that they just felt sorry for the family and were trying to give us some closure. But they did do a search, it sounds like, in late April. They searched the the property and they didn't find anything. For three days they searched the property, yes. So that was a pretty extensive, pretty thorough search for sure. Now, you're familiar with that area. It's Shelby Township, which is in sort of mid to north Macomb County for people who aren't as familiar with the area. Um, and back in the early 80s, that was farmland, Pretty woodland. Pretty area, right? Yeah, right. it was very rural. Can you tell me about the area more recently? Are you familiar with Shelby Township? Unfortunately, I'm sorry, I am not. Okay. I, I live in the area. I am not okay. familiar with that area. But I can say that I have asked the Warren police about that, the development that has gone on in that area over the last, you know, 30 years, and it was their feeling that had she been buried there, as the letter indicated, with all the development that has gone on, remains would have been found, that that entire area has been developed, even if the letter writer had the map written a little incorrectly, that with that development, they would have found remains had she been there. They feel pretty certain about that. That's what they've expressed to me. Like you, I don't live in that area. I'm not as familiar with it. But my understanding is that Shelby Township, particularly in the last 20 years, has just exploded with new homes and retail. And that it it would have been, if there was anything to find, it likely would have been found. Absolutely. That's what they share with me. So, And it's interesting to note at this time, about five years ago, my father moved to Shelby Township. He's been in Warren his entire life and just moved about five years to Shelby Township. It sounds like Warren Police didn't do a whole lot on the case until like maybe 10 years later, the 10th anniversary. It sounds like they really sort of pulled everything back out and took another go at it. If they did, I wouldn't say that was indicated to me. I can't say that I feel that there really has ever been a serious, hard look at examining evidence. And I have no doubt, maybe, possibly it has been done, but they don't reach out to the family and share any of that with us, so I wouldn't have any way to know that. I I know over the years they have contacted us from time to time. Mostly it's been the task force, the Michigan State Police. There were a couple of warrant officers through the years, as you and I spoke about not too long ago, that Mm -hmm. did reach out a couple of times. It's not that it's been complete radio silence but um, they've not been good at communicating with the family at all. Okay. And I did learn that Annie, she was not interviewed. Correct. Until until 1989. Well, she confirmed with me the other day that she has, now I, I can't say that she worded it, that she still has not been interviewed, but she did make the comment that she can't believe she was never interviewed. Now, if that, if she meant just at the time, I don't know, but just like I say, a couple of evenings ago we spoke, and her comment was that she was surprised that she had never been interviewed. Wow. I'm surprised because she's the last person known to have seen Kim. Exactly. And why did they not try to polygraph some of Kim's friends at the time to see, is it possible she was seeing a young man who may I know she was just one month shy of 13, so way too young to be dating. But did she have an interest in someone? Did a 16, 17, 18-year-old 
boy have an interest in her? Who was she hanging out with? I mean, these young people were the people to speak to at the time. Right. And I just don't think that happened. They didn't bring any of these young people in and polygraph them, get permission from their parents to speak with them. There could have been an abundance of information to help at that time, which is now lost forever. Which is absolutely infuriating. Yes. That she was written off as a runaway. Now, you mentioned earlier the task force. It sounds like Kim's case has been folded in to the Oakland County Child Killer Task Force investigation, which I learned fairly recently through a friend of mine, unrelated to any of the research I was doing, that Michigan State Police are still working on it. Right. That that paid a visit to someone. And again, when I went into this case, I didn't think Kim could be a victim. I I thought she was, you know, she's in Macomb County. She's a little bit old. You know, she's almost 13. But with the information that your father could have potentially known two of the main suspects from that investigation, it, it really gave me pause. I wondered about that myself with the police ruling, initially ruling out that she could have been a victim of the Oakland County child killer because... Oakland County, and we're, yes. we were in Macomb County. However, what's to say he didn't live in Macomb County and just coincidentally came upon her and an urge struck? And is he going to say, well, I'm not going to pick her up. She's a, a young girl walking alone, fits the, the type of you know child he's looking for. So he's not going to pick her up because he's in Macomb County and he only picks up kids right. in Oakland County. I mean, it could have been just a chance, opportunity. She was there and walking uh, alone on his way home. He spotted her. I mean, I'm not convinced that because she was in a different county that she should automatically be discounted. And I agree. I've I've really changed my view on that. You know, I went from thinking, no, but everything that, that I've learned over the past few weeks looking into this and talking to you, it just really... The only difference may be they found all the other children. Well, we think. We assume. We think, right. Right. So why would, and I used to think, well, why would he hide her body? Why would he go to greater lengths to hide her body than the rest of the children? But if he did, in fact, know my father, that's why. Because I think my father, at the time anyway, could instill a great deal of fear. He okay. was a very physical man, and I think if if you know the the person knew my father, that in itself could make him want to make sure she's not found, so he's not caught, and my dad find out that it was him. And I also, if she was seven blocks from home, or if she was over at the White Castle, and was headed home, if someone that she'd met that was a friend of your dad's was like, let me give you a ride home. Exactly. And she would have gotten in the car because she would have recognized them. Yeah. Or it could have been, if you don't get in the car, I'm going to tell your dad. True. True. And that can be a powerful motivator. Yes. Now, I know I worried about her so much that I always talked to her about being out alone and how unsafe it was. And she would tell me, uh, don't worry, no one can get me. And if they, if they, I'm fast, I can run. And if they do catch me, you know, I'll just punch them. You know, the old, I'm so tough, I can fight off whomever. And I would say, you are not as tough as a grown man. 
You need to not be outside by yourself in the evening. And I tried so hard to instill that in her. She just Because I know my parents weren't. She sounds so young. And she was. She was 12 years old. Yes. The illusion that we are, you know, she was just fearless. Mm-hmm. And she sounds like, from what I've read of her, she sounds like she was quite a character, that she was just this spirited, fun kid. Yes did all the things that I wish that I had been able to try. I mean, just little things like skateboarding or, I mean, I was very athletic, but I wasn't, I wouldn't take chances with pain. (laughs) And she would just try anything, you know, flip off the roof, skateboard, you know, just just very physical, very active, um, took risks, very confident. Yeah, the the only picture I've seen of her is that school picture. And do you know that it's it's the one that they used on all of the materials regarding her disappearance? Was that taken right. in September when school started? No, I believe that one is actually when about a year and a half prior to her disappearance. Oh wow. Mhm. Okay. So that's like a seventh grade photo. She was in eighth grade when she disappeared, I, right? I believe yes. Okay, yep. so it was a seventh grade picture. Okay. Obviously, we want people who were living in the area at the time, if they know something, please come forward. Absolutely. You, you know, you can reach out to the Warren Police. You can reach out to me via the webpage or... They can via... reach out to me on Facebook. Okay. They can reach out to my sister on Facebook. They we... can reach out to any other friend that went to Lincoln on Facebook. Because the police didn't talk to you, and if you know something... We need you to come forward. Absolutely. Even if you think, well, it's not that important. It could be. It could be. Absolutely. So please. Who was she with in the week prior to her disappearance? Who was she hanging around with? Who was she seeing on a daily basis? I wasn't living there with her at the time. I don't know. Her friends should have been interviewed, should have been asked. And if you weren't interviewed and you weren't asked then, please let us know now. Who should we have been talking to? And if they're not involved, we just need to narrow it down to to what she was doing. We're not looking to get anybody in trouble who shouldn't be in trouble, but we're all adults now, and somebody needs to come forward with information about what happened. Absolutely. It's time. Can we please just bring her home? Amen. We know there's someone out there with some information, and like you said, it may be they feel it's insignificant. It it might not be. Just let us know anything that you know we don't know. The police didn't do the interviews they needed to do. They didn't do the legwork 38 years ago. No, they did not. You know, even if we can just find out where she is. Exactly. At this point, that would be enough. That would be everything. Yeah. That's... Before we wrap up, I want to remind you that if you have information about Kim's case, please reach out. Someone knows what became of Kimberly Ann King. If you have comments, questions, or feedback about the show, please email me, host at alreadygonepodcast.com. You can find me on Twitter at alreadygonepod. I'm also on Facebook. If you want to talk about Kim's case, please join the Already Gone podcast discussion group. We'd love to hear your thoughts and theories. If you haven't left a review for the show, 
Please do so. Your five-star reviews help others discover the podcast and the cases covered here. Next week, the week of October 30th, there will be no new episode. I will be posting a mini-sode over on Patreon for Patreon subscribers. That's at patreon.com slash already gone. There are some cool perks for supporting the show, and I hope you'll check it out. Please check out our sponsors, RX Bars. For 25% off your first order, visit rxbar.com slash gone and use code gone at checkout. Also, me undies. Start wearing the best underwear of your life. Go to meundies.com slash gone right now. You get 20% off, free shipping, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. That's meundies.com slash gone. I'm Nina Instead the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.